0: Welcome to the Share Life podcast with Jason Scott Montoya, where we explore stories and systems to live better and work smarter. Welcome to another episode of Share Life. I'm Jason Scott Montoya, and today I'm here with Chad E. Foster, a motivational keynote speaker, sales and finance leader, inspirational change agent at Red Hat, which is a subsidiary of IBM, and a husband and father of two here in the Atlanta area with uh, where I'm living. So Chad was the first uh, blind executive to graduate from Harvard Business School's program for leadership development as one of the many achievements he's accomplished since going blind in his early 20s. We actually originally met about a decade ago at a Dale Carnegie training course we both participated in. Um, Chad has uh, a new book coming out soon. February 16th, mark your calendars. It's called Blind Ambition, How to Go from Victim to Visionary. Which we'll dive into as part of this discussion. So, Chad, say hello.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Jason.
0: Yeah, glad to have you. Glad, uh, looking cool. forward to you sharing your story and and uh, and the um, insights that you have for us. So, tell us a little bit about you, your story, and uh, you know, let us get to know you and and how you uh, intersected, um, you know, with me and my journey in Atlanta and Dale Carnegie and, and where you are now.
1: <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So I've got a bit of a unique story. You know, growing up, lived a, a fairly normal childhood. I was able to see, and I, I played sports. I know you mentioned in your introduction that you know I, I'm blind or I, I went blind. Yeah. But you know, growing up, I I played sports and and lived a relatively normal childhood. You know, I was learning yeah. the limitations of my eyesight as I started to lose it, mm-hmm. and the older I got, you know, in high school, the the vision started to worsen and worsen, and then. In college, I finally lost my eyesight altogether. And so that was a a really difficult period for me, you know, not being able to, to, to really. uh, And it,
0: and was it resulted in something that, that you didn't know what was causing it or you knew it was causing it and that was the inevitable end? Well,
1: yeah, yeah, that's great question. It was retinitis pigmentosa and they diagnosed me when I was four years old, three and a half years old, but I, you know, I. I didn't really see any symptoms of it. So I thought everything was going to be fine. I thought I would be the outlier because when I was 14 years old, you know, the top retinal specialist in the Southeast was surprised that I was so active because I was playing sports and riding motorcycles and driving. And and he thought, wow, maybe Chad's an outlier on this. And so I I had this false sense of security that maybe I would be the outlier and I would, it wouldn't happen to me until I was later, you know, much, much older in life. And then it actually happened when I was in college. Mm. So I I sort of knew about it. I sort of knew about it as like an intellectual concept, but I didn't really internalize it. You know what I mean?
0: Mm -hmm. And when it happened, did it happen fast or Was it slowly over years?
1: It was over a few years. So it wasn't like I woke up one day and it just instantly went away. It started happening around 19 to 20. And by the time I was 23 years old, I had to get a a guide dog just to be able Mm -hmm. to walk around. So, you know, four years sounds like a lot of time, but, you know, in the span of giving up everything that you had associated with your self-identity and all your hopes and dreams for the future and what you thought you were going to be four years is a pretty short amount of time to go through that kind of a transformation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So where did that, how did that unfold in college and and as you entered into the, your vocational pathway?
1: Yeah. So it, it happened in college and then I ended up going to uh, I had to get a medical withdrawal from my classes and from my major. I was going into the medical field. That obviously didn't seem like a good option. I wasn't even sure what I could do, let alone what I wanted to do. Yeah. So I was really kind of down and out, and I went to Leader Dogs for the Blind at that time to get my first guide dog. And that's where I learned a profound lesson in, in gratitude, where I met people and lived with people who had it far worse off than I did. Mm. Some people. You know, they were deaf and they were blind and they were getting a guide dog to be independent, which was a really moving experience for me to to live with these people for a month like I did. It really made me appreciate the profound importance of gratitude. And so I left there with a new perspective on life and it really changed my outlook on everything. So when I returned back to college with the realization that I was, you know, I was in the process, I needed to relearn how to learn. Uh, you know, so that I could conduct my my schoolwork because I had to, you know, I wasn't able to read anymore. So I had to figure yeah. out a new way to consume information. You know, reading's pretty important in college. Now, there's yeah. quite a bit of reading <laughs> to be done. Yeah. So I had to figure out a new path ahead. But that newfound perspective with gratitude really helped me quite a bit as I started to lean into that. And then I ended up moving into the business field.
0: Yeah. So I guess the thing that I'd like to dive into a little bit there is, you know, you made the comment about seeing these other people that had, uh, had it harder than you and, and that created a contrast for you in your own situation that was still hard, but not to the same degree. Yeah. And it's something I've been thinking about recently in terms of, you know, a lot of, particularly like Americans, a lot of us are unhappy or upset or frustrated, um, or ungrateful. And then you have a lot of immigrants that come and they, they don't have any near anywhere near the, um, the privilege and, and uh, flourishing that, that we have. And yet they're happy and grateful. And and there's this interesting contrast. It's very similar to what you're describing. And, and so I'm curious what you think's going on there and why that's happening. What are your thoughts?
1: I think people take things for granted, straight mm. up. I think we all take things for granted. I took thing, I took what little eyesight I had for granted as I was losing it. Okay. And so I was sort of, woe is me, even before I went blind. I was sort of, woe is me, like, oh, wow, I can't see that well at night. Mm. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't see at all during the day. Yeah. And then, and, and it, it puts things into perspective. I think we all have a tendency to just kind of not really put as much weight behind the things that we do have versus the things we don't have. I think all of us are, are looking at what we don't have and focusing on that. And so our energy goes where our attention is. Okay. So if our attention is on what we don't have, you know, that's where our energy will flow. But if, if we instead focus on the things that we do have, then I think it will improve obviously our gratitude and our, and our uh, relationship with our present. But at, at my house, my kids, we do a gratitude exercise every night, because I mm-hmm. think it's one of the most important things we can do is be grateful for what we have. And so i force the family every night, we say three things that we're thankful for every day, because if we bring our conscious attention to it, my hope is that it will creep into the subconscious because I think, you know, we all get busy. We live a busy lifestyle here in the U S we're always on the go. And it's easy to kind of take these things for granted. And, and one other sort of nuance to that, I think is some people I think maybe confuse happiness with joy. Yeah. And there's, there's a sense of joy, which is, Hey, I feel good in this moment. Yeah. And that's, to me, is not happy. I'm happier now, and I'm more successful now than when I could see. Does that yeah. mean I, I feel constant joy? No, it doesn't. It means that I have I face struggles, um, but because I have a balanced life that includes purpose, it includes adversity, it includes growth, it includes some joy, it includes things that I like. But it's not all about feeling good. It's not just about like. You know the hit of dopamine that we get when yeah. we when we do something great. You know there there's a lot of enjoyment we can get from doing something really hard. You know overcoming yeah. some challenge that's really you know re- really difficult for each of us. So I, I just would I I'd, I'd want to delineate between what is joy and, and what is happiness and are we really thinking about happiness in the in the same way? I think some people maybe are a little little confused on that and thinking everything should be easy. And if everything yeah. were easy. I don't think life would be that enjoyable, frankly. The the (laughs) best, the best views are are from the tallest mountains, and I know that sounds ironic coming from blind guy. But, but (laughs) yeah, it's it's the the more difficult it is, the more pride you feel once you accomplish it. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So let's kind of overlay that. You know, twenty twenty was a rough year for a lot of people, and and I think people responded in in the two different ways. Some sort of looked at it as a challenge to overcome, and a lot of people looked at it as I'm a victim and and yeah. sort of were crushed under that and, and maybe the reality is we're a bit of both to different degrees in different areas so you know what do you think about the challenges we faced with this pandemic the social crisis the political crisis the one they sort of steamroll on top of each other and it can be overwhelming um but yet yeah. we don't have to be paralyzed by that what, what do you what do you say to that
1: well i've, I've had an interesting uh, journey there's a lot going on here i think um I've seen life from multiple vantage points. And I think, um, it, first of all, you know, we have to be more empathetic, I think, to what everybody's facing. Not everybody's facing the same reality. Yeah. I thought I could imagine what other people face before I went blind. Yeah. But then I, I realized I actually had no clue. Yeah. People would come up to me and tell my wife that, you know, they, they really like my dog as if I couldn't speak or they would ask who feeds my dog for me yeah, or assume that I'm jobless or not living off or jobless and and living off of the government. Yeah. And so I've had a lot of experiences that taught me that empathy and and understanding and leading people through different crises, it's about meeting people where they are, um, not where we assume they should be. So I'm not really, I don't really think about, you know, what my eyes are telling me, like, like a lot of people, they'll, they'll look at a situation and kind of take it at face value. So I think it's really important for us to think kind of where people are coming from, because everybody's faced something challenging this, this year. For, for example, you know, thankfully, we didn't have any medical crises in my family. We yeah. know people who have. We didn't yeah. have any economic crises in my family. We know people who have. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot that's happened. You mentioned, you know, the, the medical, the social, The uh, some of the political unrest. There's been a lot going on this year. And I think it's just, I think people, frankly, have a tendency, especially with technology, to abstract themselves from a situation. You know, it's easy to to feel a certain way behind a keyboard. And and I don't think the pandemic is helping us. But I think when we sit down and connect with people on a human level and talk to them one-on-one and really understand kind of where they're coming from, with this learning mindset, to, to really appreciate where they're coming from, with some some common uh, respect and and uh, and a little bit of humility to try and understand where they're coming from, I think that goes a long way. I think the the problem we end up is when, you know, we we end up in a, a situation where technology abstracts us from people, and then social yeah. media does more of that. You know, there's all the algorithms that create these echo chambers of like like-minded people who don't who who aren't able to have those more difficult, in my opinion, interesting conversations about where they differ in opinion and really learn from one another. I think there's a lot of that missing um, right now in society in general, and certainly 2020 has exacerbated all that.
0: Yeah, interesting. And and so I'm hearing, uh, you know, one of the things I'm hearing from you is, Jason, our assumptions are not always right. We really need to challenge those, and that allows us to have more empathy for others. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think we, we all need a genuinely open and curious mind mm-hmm. so that we can seek to learn and understand, you know, none of us have all the answers Yeah, and that takes mutual respect and it takes trust and it, it takes a series of questions, right? When we don't agree with somebody, the first thing that I want to do is try to understand what am I missing? You know, I, mm-hmm. I start off with, you know what, I respect this person and they, they believe what they believe due to some good reasons, we all are, in my opinion, 99.99% alike genetically. And so yeah. if we believe that, so the differences among us are due to the collective experiences in our lives. Yeah. And so what experiences did they have that led them to conclude something different? And so I, I think the same way is, you know, wh- what am I missing? Is is there something that I'm missing? And I think, you know, there's, there's a, a dose of that we, we could all benefit from, particularly as, as we try to, you know, unpack everything that's going on because we live in a very very complex society very complex economy and you know lots of different people with uh, with with different opinions and and for yeah. for good reasons most of the time
0: yeah so so you mentioned you know the idea of happiness and joy and the difference between those and and being grateful versus being entitled so when you think about just living better mm-hmm. wh- what does it mean to live better what does it mean to flourish what does it mean? Um, for that to, to be a part of your life?
1: Well, yeah, happiness is is not joy. I mentioned that earlier. And I don't think living 100% comfortable all the time is the answer either. Yeah. I think there's, in, in my mind, you know, getting outside of our comfort zone is, is hugely important. Uh, a mindset of growth through adversity. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I took up snow skiing, right? I I really love downhill skiing. I went to Park City last week, actually, it was there with my daughter, we went on a daddy daughter ski trip. And, you know, we go now I started skiing after I went blind. I was yeah. 38 years old, the first time that I went. And a lot of people questioned me, like, are you trying to kill yourself? What are you doing? <laughs> like, you, you realize you can't see and, and now you're going to throw yourself down a mountain.
0: Yeah.
1: And of course, I didn't start off on a double black diamond. Yeah, I started off on something that, you know, with, with, you know, very easy, like a bunny slope, but first I had to get comfortable with the idea that I was knowingly and willingly putting myself out there a little bit. But I think Mm. that to me is, is living better. I could stay in my house and live safely and and not have to worry about getting hurt on the side of a mountain. But is that really living? Is that really, is that really what I want? So for me, you know, living better is about growth and it's about Doing things that we know that that fill up our cup, and that could be, you know, uh, in, in terms of sports or, or entertainment. Like I was saying with skiing, it could also be at work. What are we yeah. doing? Is does it connect with our purpose? So if yeah. we can connect our purpose to our profession and our passion, you know, th- that to me is that intersection, that magical intersection, is where li- living better is for me personally. Mm.
0: So you kind of you know as you talk about you know the the word courageous comes to mind right so i guess i'm curious what's the difference between living courageously and living recklessly Mm. is there a difference or are they the same or
1: well um i i i do think there is a difference but it's very nuanced there's a fine line between it some people would argue that you know what i did last week might have been reckless and mm-hmm. and maybe maybe it is in, in some well i don't think it's reckless but but maybe it's not the safest thing in the world yeah so yeah just to stick with that metaphor because i think this metaphor is appropriate for for all of us in life i don't get on the slopes and uh, you know not take any precautions you know i have yeah. i have the proper equipment i've been trained by people who have done this professionally I have a guide who helps me work down the mountain. We have Bluetooth earpieces. We are very mindful of crowds and, and trees. You know, there's I don't mind I don't mind the steepest mountain. I'll ski a double black, but I'm not I'm not going to ski a double black if it's a double black because of trees and rocks yeah. and things that are going to kill me. You know, I don't yeah. really I'm, I'm not a big fan of dying, but <laughs> but at the same time. You know, I, I, I am comfortable with the idea, Jason, that all of us are going to, at some point, we're all going to die, okay? Yeah. And we can all get hurt doing anything. You know, my, I was in Knoxville. I'm from Knoxville. My dad took me to the gym. It's been about five years ago. Told me to leave the, have a guide dog. Told me to leave the guide dog. We'd go work out. He'd guide me. As we're leaving the gym, he accidentally runs me into a wall and splits my head wide open. He didn't wow. do it on purpose, but it was something as benign as going to the gym. So if I can get hurt doing something as benign as going to the gym and walking with somebody, you know, why not do the things that that thrill me it, w- while taking all the necessary precautions? You know, I I don't want to have anything bad happen, but something bad can happen anywhere in my life. So yeah. I, I I do I do feel like it's important for all of us to live a life that excites us, and for all of us, it's different, it's you know, for me, it's skiing. That's one of the things that really thrills me for, for you, it might be something completely different. And for the listeners, it might be something different, but whatever excites you, whatever thrills you, if it fills you up, then you have to pursue it in a smart way.
0: Yeah. 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 That makes sense. So how does all that translate to work in business and vocation? What does it mean to work smarter?
1: Well, I think we have to take advantage of all the tools that we have. And some of that involves, you know, getting, rid of preconceived notions that we may have. Uh, I remember one time I was working at SRA. Um, I was actually when you and I met back in, back in yeah. uh, 2009, 2010. And back then it was a complex job. I had to research congressional reports and identify Freedom of Information Act data about where certain budgets were going and trace that as part of these very large program acquisitions. And so it would involve Scanning thousands and thousands of pages to find this one needle in a haystack. And a lot of people, you know, there at first doubted whether or not a blind guy could do this. It, it involves so much reading to scan to skim through all of those documents to find those needles and haystacks. Yeah. But what they didn't realize that I was actually using my disadvantage to my advantage. So I use my technology, which would convert all of those documents into searchable documents. And then yeah. I created a search algorithm that would go in and pull out the pieces of information that I was looking for. So I could find these needles in these haystacks in a matter of three to five minutes, whereas it took the people who were my, my peers who could see, it would take them days and weeks to find mm-hmm. this one needle in a haystack. So my, my friends or my colleagues would be searching and searching and searching, and I would fire off my algorithm and go get a cup of coffee and then come back to a summary report. And so while they were thinking that, hey, this is, this is too much for anybody who can't see, you know, it's really important to be aware of all the tools that are out there. And so I like to think of it as, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like if you're a carpenter in, in your job, right? Yeah. If you're a carpenter who has to think about the tool that you're going to use and how you're going to use it, you're yeah. probably not going to be a very good carpenter. You have okay. to get to the point where you master your tools in whatever your profession. And, and I'm not a carpenter, but you, you get the idea, to where all of a sudden the instrument you use to cut your your piece of wood fades out of consciousness. Yeah. Right. It just it comes subconsciously. It's it's seamless, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you envision the final outcome and you can, you can take advantage of all the tools, but if you don't master those tools to such an extent, you're going to be thinking a lot more tactically than, than strategically.
0: Mm -hmm. So, so you're, you're leaning into this idea that our limitations can actually be a leverage point for, for discovering and using powerful resources. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, when you think about this idea of limitations, and perhaps how much we resist it and actually how much we should probably embrace it more. So.
1: Well, I think, you know, we have to learn. It's, it's, it's like, there's, there's, there's fact and there's fiction. There are certain facts of a situation and there are certain stories that we tell ourselves about a given situation. So you could look at my situation and say, all right, Chad, you know, you're, you're blind. Okay. That's a fact. You might look at it and go, wow, okay, Chad, you went blind because you have really bad luck. Well, that's not a fact. That could be an interpretation of it. An alternative interpretation of it could be, I went blind because I'm one of the few people on the planet with the strength and toughness to overcome it and use it as a tool to reach and help other people. Technically, those stories are correct. One of those stories holds me back, and the other story powers me forward. So we have to be really really careful and intentional about the stories we choose to tell ourselves about our facts because at the end of our lives we all become the stories that we tell ourselves so are you going to tell yourself a story of i'm a victim because if you are that's that's what you're going to be and that's what your situation's going to materialize into but if you yeah. tell yourself a different story a better story that reframes your situation and your disadvantages into advantages then that's who you can be
0: yeah so that, that that ties into the idea, you know, I want to dive into with you is this idea of mentoring and helping others. And so what does that mean to you? How important is it? And, and how do we help people see or frame things in a way that, that helps them grow and move forward in life versus staying stuck and trapped and isolated? Yeah, I, wouldn't,
1: I wouldn't be here without the mentors that I've had in my life. In my opinion, great mentors are more than just professionals. Yeah, uh, they they care about the humanity of, of each of us. It's more than just a professional relationship. Yeah, I've I've had some great mentors in my life, and and one of them, unfortunately, I lost this last year. Uh, mm. Ben Geesman, he was uh, he was my 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 leader, my my mentor when I worked for SRA. In fact, he was the guy I worked for when I met you. Yeah, and he was yeah you know, he was a very remarkable person. You know, I joined. SRA. And um, I, I didn't, I'd been there for two weeks. I didn't have enough vacation time. And he ended up giving me time off to go visit with, with my, my child, even though I didn't technically, you know, quote, qualify for it. He, he cared about me beyond, beyond just what I could do for the company. And so yeah. obviously when you have somebody like that on your side, you're willing to take bullets for those kinds of people. And, and that's, yeah. that's how I felt towards Ben. He, he stuck with me as I re- relocated back to Atlanta and, you know, he passed this last April uh, due to brain cancer. He was 53 years old. And it just, it reminds me of how hard it is to find great mentors and how important it is to really hold on to them once you do. But I don't think any of us can get to where we want to be without mentors. And so as we start to, to move to where we want to be, make sure we're looking back and pulling people up behind us too, because none of us can do it alone. None of us just yeah. not possible we all need people to help guide us lead us and mentor us along the way
0: yeah so what would you say to someone um who would like to to either lean into that idea either as the men be to mentor someone else or to be mentored you know how, how do they move how do they how does that play out is it an organic thing or is it a an intentional one
1: i think it you know it it doesn't have to be organic. I think the relationship is best when it's organic, but I think you could, you know, you can be intentional about creating the right conditions. I I don't think that you should wait on someone to just fall into your lap. I I don't believe in that. I don't, you know, luck seems to happen to people who work harder. Right. And so (laughs) it's funny how that, how that works out. You know, the, these people are so lucky, but they're working constantly on improving their conditions. And so, do you have a situation that facilitates the type of encounter that could become that organic mentoring relationship? Is it a professional club that you belong to? Or is it, yeah. you know, are you attending the events at work? And I know we're in a virtual world, so that's a little bit harder, but are you setting yourself up for those types types of opportunities to present themselves? If if they're not, then you're relying on hope and hope is not a plan. Hope does not work, right? You have to, at some point, take take the steering wheel. And although you can't, you know, force somebody to be your mentor, you can create more opportunities for that organic mentoring opportunity pre- to present itself and, and for you to, to offer that to someone else.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I like that. So, you know, we, you talked a, a little bit earlier about narratives, the stories we tell ourselves, the stories we tell others and how those affect how we see the world and how we operate. So what are some real or fictional stories or narratives that have shaped you as a person?
1: Yeah, so I think at first, when I started going blind, I started telling myself that first story, you know, the the poor me story. Yeah. And that was really controlling my mindset. And it was only holding me back. I was the victim, that victim mentality. And then I realized that there was a great escape hatch to my condition, to my situation. And that great escape hatch was my mind. And if I chose to embrace a different story, a different narrative, then I could set myself free and so I did that and at first my story was that of hey I'm gonna I'm gonna become a a business person and I'm going to be a role model for people who are facing a disability like this and I want to really demonstrate through example where success is possible and then once that started to materialize you know I realized that that it it wasn't enough it was good to, to be able to reach people in that way but there was more that I could do. And so then I started telling myself different stories about, you know, how I could use it to help other people, how I could use this situation, not so indirectly, but be more intentional about it. And so then my, my narrative or my story has evolved into one of, you know what, I, I have an opportunity to, to help people. And that's why I've gotten into to keynote speaking. And that's why I've, one of the reasons why I've written the book is because I feel like I can do a lot of good and I can help people. And one of the stories that I that I tell myself today is I lost my vision to help other people improve theirs.
0: Yeah. From victim to visionary. So, what's so appealing about the victim narrative? Why do we, so many of us, and why do well we all embrace it at some point in our life? But why do we, why do we embrace it? What does it give us? What is it? What's the benefits?
1: It's comforting. Mm -hmm. It's comforting and it's easy and it doesn't require holding ourselves accountable. Accountability scares a lot of people. And look, you know, you're, you're absolutely spot on. I want to foot stomp the point that you said, we all fall into it at some point. We all do. You know, it's, it's human instincts. It's human nature. It's hard to be real with yourself and say, you know what? I'm not responsible for my circumstances but I have to be accountable for my life and its outcomes. If I don't yeah. own my life, who's going to? And, and yeah. who's going to be the one who loses if I don't? I'm the only person who will, will lose if, if I don't take ownership of my life. So I have a responsibility to myself to own it, but I think it's comforting you know, to, to think that you know, poor me, um, and, and that, that feels good for a period of time, but at some point we have to ask ourselves, How is this poor me mentality improving my situation? If all I'm doing is giving myself a mental pat on the back and never changing my circumstances, and when I'm 75, 80 years old, if we're ever so fortunate to get there, how are we going to feel about that pat on the back if we've done it for 40 years and never gotten what we want out of life and look back and feel miserable that Mm -hmm. we didn't hold ourselves accountable to go for our dreams, whatever those dreams may be? You know, I would much rather die trying to reach my dreams than to never have tried it at all, yeah. And to me, that's the biggest fear: is looking back, going, "What could have been? What should have been? If only yeah. I tried." That's so. That's you're... way more scary than being accountable.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, when you compare the two, and and perhaps that's not what we're doing. And so you're you're really hitting on the idea of regret, and living without regret. Yeah. And so how do you how do you look at regret, and and um, and is it a good thing, a bad thing? Is it a tool? Is it is it something to be embraced or resisted?
1: Yeah, I think it is a tool. I think for me, it's, it's trying to fast forward in my life and, and put myself in my future self and looking back on my life and thinking about it in very simple terms. Uh, I, I try to boil it down to, you know, two options, which one am I going to regret more? And a lot of times that mental exercise forces me to have the courage in the face of fear. You know, we all are scared of stepping outside of our comfort zones. It's normal to be scared of that. Um, you know, courage is not the absence of fear. It's it's doing something despite the presence of fear, it's stepping through the fear. And so I like to use the future chat exercise to look back and say, all right, you've got two options. You can do plan A or plan B. Which one are you going to, to regret more? Uh, yeah. if you don't if you don't follow it and that forces me to make some tough decisions and a lot yeah. of times it forces me to do some very uncomfortable things, but none would be uh, less uncomfortable than than standing at my future self standing there as, as my future self looking back going, gosh, I wish I would have done the, the, um, the, yeah. the thing that I didn't have the guts to do. Yeah, yeah.
0: So. How does how do systems play into all this, and how do you think about and use systems um, as part of your your journey in life and work and so on?
1: Well, I think it's tempting, you know, for people to try and oversimplify things. That's the way the human brain is 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 wired, excuse me. Yeah. Down to the transaction, and you know, the reality is everything tends to belong to a a much larger system or or, or Mm -hmm. ecosystem. And there are always dependencies between things. And so, you know, our brains would like for it to be simple, but unfortunately, <laughs> that's, that's just not how it works. Yeah. And we see this at Red Hat. You know, you mentioned I work at Red Hat and we're a software company. We, we write open source software for the enterprise. We crowdsource innovation. Yeah. And there are lots of dependencies. I think it's a great example of just how interconnected things are between you know layers of technology and the way software is developed and all the different partners in the ecosystem but it it highlights to me that you can't just if you focus on one thing without considering all of the implications across the broader system or ecosystem then you're going to dilute the return that you get now I'm not saying that you should you know try to do 10 things at once that that never yeah. works out well you have to focus on you know, one or one or two things at a time. You know, to, to really have an impact. Yeah. But if you're not thinking about the broader system interdependencies, then you're going to be doing yourself a disservice.
0: So, how do we embrace the system and sort of ride the wave of its power versus um, fighting against it?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really good question. I think it's it's understanding that um, you have to create some inertia and 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 really trying to figure out where you can have the biggest impact on the individual element, right? And and where can you partner with others who can help you augment your capabilities in mm-hmm. other areas so that you can help to drive some of that inertia. Yeah.
0: Okay. And and when does a system become tyrannical?
1: <laughs> oh um when does it become tyrannical? That's a really good question. I think um there, there are lots of instances I think of, of where the system can, can drive us. Um, I think the most important thing is to make sure that anytime you're looking across a system, whether it's a company, a management framework, um, I, like I mentioned before, a, a technology ecosystem, you have to make sure you get all of the incentives aligned across the entire ecosystem. And that is a lot easier to say than it is to do so that yeah. you've got all of the system elements working in one direction but if okay. you have you know only 50% of them pulling in one direction and the other 50% going in the other direction that's going to that's going to create complete chaos and disruption so it's really important that when you look at it at the system level the ecosystem level that you create the right instruments of incentive whether it be financial or, or otherwise for all of the component parts to be rowing in the same direction
0: mm. So you've shared a lot with us and and we're closing out on our time here. So I wanted to, um, you know, find out how does all of this intersect with your book? Um, You know, how did, why did, why did you decide to write it now versus years ago or, or five years from now? Um, And, and who, who does it help and how does it help them?
1: Okay. So I think the book really, I've, I've written it for people who are looking for some hope, some inspiration and a way to connect that inspiration to implementation. So it's a story about how to nurture resilience in, in your life. So people who are facing adversity, people who feel like they need a path to a better future self, they wanna unlock their full potential or they're, they're looking to, to dare to try and do something great. And so the reason I wrote it is because for a few years, you know, I'd always sort of heard people would come up and tell me that I was inspiring. Yeah. And it was one of those things that I, I really didn't take seriously because I didn't identify as an inspiring person or an inspiring situation. And, and maybe some of it was because I didn't want to acknowledge the gravity of my own situation. You know, if I acknowledged yeah. that I was inspiring, then that would acknowledge how difficult my situation was. So I, I, I sort of ignored that feedback for a while. And, and I wasn't even trying when I'm going to get this. It would be when I'm you know, doing my job or going to my daughter's school or, or something like that. People would would tell me that. But then when I, I went to Harvard I was there and I had a, a really moving experience in Bill George's class with authentic leadership and that was a moment that I realized that I needed to try and be more intentional about it because we talked about how to discover one's true north and while they're doing that my classmates continue to give me feedback you know that I was inspiring them and then eventually I was elected as our graduating speaker and I saw firsthand when I did that when I used it for the first time intentionally How powerfully I could help people if I were to be intentional about it. And so that moment, it inspired them and it helped them, but it inspired me too. It inspired me to understand and take action on how much of a difference I can make uh, so that I can help other people and they don't have to experience the same struggles that I've experienced, but they can gain the strength that I've gained. And so it's really about communicating the lessons learned through the hardships that I've faced and the way that I've learned to create the right narrative in my life, the narrative of, of happiness, of resilience, of success, of holding myself accountable, of ignoring the excuses that I could make for myself, but instead driving towards the dreams that I want in my life, and really teaching people how to live that more fulfilled life that, that you know, helps them get to where they want to be uh, without having to go through all the things that I've, that I've gone through.
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting. And so why now?
1: Well, the, the Versus timing. The, um, yeah. Sorry, my phone's ringing there. <laughs> yeah. Put it on, do not disturb. So the the timing um it, it just worked out to where it's coming out right after right after the pandemic started. I didn't really plan it like that unfortunately, yeah. but but I think People can benefit from it, so it, it worked out to where it, it takes about two years to get a book to market. Yeah, you know, I had worked on getting the proposal and then shopping it and getting a publisher and, and then writing it and then getting it out on shelves. It, it took some time to do it. It just so happens that it's coming out at a time when I think a lot of people can really benefit from how do you, how do we build resilience? And that's what I that's what I teach in, in, uh, you know with keynote presentations and that's what I do with workshops is teach companies how to build more resilience into the fabric of their culture and and how to, how to have individuals that are more resilient. And that's what I'm doing with the book. So there wasn't any, unfortunately, I can't claim any sort of uh, prescient timing. Like I actually (laughs) intended to do that. It was, I wasn't Nostradamus in, in terms of that, but I think people can really benefit from it. Now, as we mentioned, 2020 has been a really difficult year for everybody. And I think people want to emerge from 2020 stronger than ever and I think yeah. the book is a good way to do that. In fact, we're starting a, a blind ambition community too. We'd love to have listeners join us in that community. We're going to have special guests. We're going to go over stuff from the yeah. book. Um, so tell tell you know, us uh, how people can
0: learn about that community, learn more about the book, learn more about you. What's, uh, what's the place sure. for them to
1: go? So they can go to chadefoster.com. That's my website. And there you'll see lots of videos and uh, articles and and um, information about the book, and they can also go to the book page, which is blindambitionbook.com. Okay. And on that page, they can sign up for this launch uh, group or the the Blind Ambition Community Facebook group, and uh, and and get free access when they sign up for the Blind Ambition Community. They'll get free access to the digital book if they pre-order now. If they pre-order the book before it goes on sale on February 16th, they can get a free audio version to download as well. And so it's a, it's going to be an exciting time. We've, we've had a lot of really good feedback. I've got some, some good endorsements from people like, uh, you know, the Jim Whitehurst, who's the president of IBM, Bill George, who's a senior fellow at Harvard Business School, Tony Quello the guy who wrote the Americans with, the, with Disabilities Act is also yeah. a supporter and, and uh, Joe Radioff who's the president and CEO of Cubase. So we're, we're getting okay. some good feedback that it can really help people. And, and I would love to have listeners come and join us because I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have some of those people there as guests. And it's going to be a really interactive dialogue about what people can gain from the book and how they can apply it to their lives.
0: Yeah, yeah, it sounds awesome. And then are you uh, um, uh, active on any social media channels at all? That people? Oh, yeah.
1: yeah, We're at? on Chatty. Uh, find Chatty Foster, and that's for Facebook and Instagram, Find Chatty Foster. I'm active on LinkedIn as well. Okay. And I'm also less active, but but active on Twitter. And my okay. Twitter handle is Chad E. Foster.
0: Okay. I yeah, will put links to those.
1: And uh, by, by the way, all of those handles are on my website. If you go to my website, they're all right there.
0: Okay. Awesome. Great. Any final thoughts or words of wisdom that you want to leave us with before we uh, conclude? Well,
1: yeah, I think... You know, we're all directors in the film of our life. Yeah. We all get to choose how it ends. We don't get to choose the, the, the cast of characters and all the props that are in our life. You know, we, but at the end of the day, we all have to figure out, we have to visualize what a great ending to our film is. What, what does a great yeah. ending to our life story look like? That includes things that are outside of our control. For me, it's blindness. For you, it's going to be something else. For all of us, it's, it's something different. There are things that we can't change, but we have to visualize what a great ending to our story is. And once we can start to visualize that happy ending, including our cast of characters and all the baggage that we bring with the props that, that each of us have in our life, then we can really start to build a plan around that, how to make that vision come to reality.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chad, for sharing. I appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Jason. Awesome.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Share Life. For additional stories and systems to live better and work smarter, visit jasonscottmontoya.com. That's jasonscottmontoya.com. We look forward to having you listen in on the next episode of Share Life.